thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Erod, and with me, as always, is a man who can empty an abyss, Mike Van de Bogart. <laughs> uh, thank you, Joe, and thank you once again to our loyal listeners for tuning in. I'm a little out of sorts today because we have this stupid taco truck outside of our studio, <laughs> and it's loud, so apologize if you can actually hear that. They can't. They probably Only can. you can. Only I can. But so, uh, quickly here, we're just going to give some shout-outs to new Patreon supporters, so we have Teresa Vela Tuza, Tara Niederer, and Linda Cox. So thank, thank you all very much. Thank you for supporting the show. We have a lot of cool stuff planned for the rest of the year, and it wouldn't be possible without the support of everyone on Patreon and YouTube memberships and uh, Apple subscriptions and buying all our swag and all that stuff. So thank Absolutely. you so much. Uh, if you want to call the show and leave a voicemail, you can call 208-391-6913. Talk about anything you want. Um, we prefer, you know, after bar time when you come home, give us a call. Those are the, the fun ones. So, Yeah, just, if you're feeling a little spicy, uh, feeling like just saying some things you wouldn't normally do, that's a perfect time. Um, that guy just did a wheelie down the street. Oh, that's all. I missed it. <laughs> it's going to be on the stream. Heck yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, I'll take uh, my sunglasses off. That was just a joke. I was oh, going to yeah. pretend like I was just like, oh, we got a studio now. I'm all hot. I just wear uh, sunglasses now. I'm yeah. hot crap. So and <laughs> just remember, though, if you call our number, uh, anything you say could be used on a, a future episode. So just no, rem- will be. It will be. Yeah. Um, so we're doing another one of our uh, cold case episodes today. We've done a few of those now. The We do a location profile, and then we touch on three cases that are interesting, but there's less information out there so you really couldn't do a full episode on them but um they're interesting cases nonetheless so i uh, hope you enjoy it people really seem to enjoy the the cold case episodes yeah i think so, those are pretty good especially people that maybe don't have the time to listen to an entire episode and want yeah. to just get that out there so so all right everybody all let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown With over 52 million acres, the U.S. National Park System is home to some of the most breathtaking natural features on the planet. Tens of millions enjoy these parks every year. Join us this week for an installment of National Park Cold Cases as we explore Mount Rainier National Park.
All right, I'm having trouble too. I was like tongue twistering that up there. So it's Mount Rainier National Park. Not whatever I said. I was in merging words. We'll so. hear about it. I'm sure. <laughs> so Mount Rainier National Park is 236,000 anchors. It rakes 30th in size compared to the other national parks. It is located in Washington State, and it was established March 2nd, 1899. Um, what year was it? Does it say? Uh, 2022, they got 2.3 million visitors. So it was the, ranked 18th for visitors at that time. So it's a very popular park. Yes. So I've he, hiked there, too. It's a cool park. Oh, you've been there? Yeah. Oh, I, I have never gone hiking in Washington State, any of those parks. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. you've got Olympic and Mount Rainier, know, the two big like ones. All the lush, whatever the Copen climate classification people call it. The, oh, we get into yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. So. I have a little story about my experience with oh, weather, too, that I can Oh, I, I can't can wait. In. can't wait to not hear about it. So, anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> So the earliest evidence of human activity in that area, which is Mount, now Mount Rainier National Park, is a projectile point dated to circa 4,000 to 5,800 BP, which is before present, found along Bench Lake Trail, the first section of, of the Snow Lake Trail. So I put a little note in here about before present. Um, so obviously dates can be expressed AD, BC, BCE, and BP, um, the accepted way to represent um, geology is BP, where the year 1950 is used as present. 1950 is the date that calibration curves were established for radiocarbon dating. Oh, okay. So, so it's like a more scientific way to say a date, like instead of like BC or AD or... That's funny, because if it's just 1950, why don't they just say before 1950? Like five two thousand years, years before, before 1950, because BP is okay. <laughs> you know, in like a thousand years, if we're still here, yeah, they're gonna be like, "This is dumb." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get it, but now we have to like subtract plus yeah. add. All right. Anyway, a more substantial archaeological find was a rock shelter near Frying Pan Creek, which is east of Goat Island Mountain. Hunting artifacts were found in the shelter. The shelter would not have been used all year round. Cultural affinities suggest the site was used by the Columbia Plateau tribes from 1,000 to 300 BP. Yeah, that's like, okay. I'm, I'm not going to go down that mental avenue of no. figuring that out. Yeah, I'm like trying to do math in my head. I'm like, so like the 19 or the 1500s? I don't just know. Leave it to smarter <laughs> just, people. Just leave it to smarter people. <laughs> that's why we're doing this show and not out there. Yeah. So, uh, interesting facts about high-altitude tornadoes. So, if you've been on our Facebook page, did I put it on Instagram, too, or is it just Facebook? I don't know. It I might be on Instagram. both. There is a sweet video of a tornado in the mountains in Wyoming. So, we're going to talk a little bit about that because I know when Mike saw it, he thought it was fake. I posted it without checking if it was fake, so I'm <laughs> glad he looked into that. Um, so There are some on the internet that are saying that it could be... An optical illusion of uh, a, like it might be a tornado in the a valley beyond the mountain range, but others were saying that it was an actual high altitude tornado. I was gonna say, plus the mountains in Wyoming, because I have been there. There, is, I, unless I'm not aware of one, there I haven't seen a mountain range based on that like angle. Yeah, that would be like a very thin mountain range. Yeah, I don't so, know, or a very large tornado far away. <laughs> yeah. So uh, while rare, high altitude tornadoes can and do happen in the United States every year. Here's a couple of the highest tornadoes on record. So in 2004, there was one in the Rockwell Pass in California at 12,156 feet. 
Got a picture of it here too. Let's see if I can uh, do something with this. I mean, you can grab it later. Yeah, I'll grab while it later. I'm talking. Um, let's do it in the patron episode. So if you okay. want to see that picture, you got to pay us for it. <laughs> so in 2012, uh, Mount Evans, Colorado had one at 11,900 feet. Uh, 1984, Long's Peak had one at 11,400 feet. That's crazy. Uh, 1987, the Teton Wilderness in Wyoming had one at 10,070 feet. Uh, this tornado was rated an F4 out of 5 on the Fujita scale with a maximum wind estimated between 207 and 260 miles per hour. Can you imagine you're hiking out there and all of a sudden, <laughs> all the things that get you <laughs> yeah. location unknown in the wilderness, Tornado's a mountain not- tornado is never on my list. No. <laughs> That's going to be the new off the deep end. <laughs> what do you think happened? Mountain tornado. Yeah. It had to have been a mountain yeah, tornado. Uh, a bear nado <laughs> that started in the mountains. So Netflix, I posted that online. I'm like, bear, your movie, bear nado started right. in the mountains. Um, co- we should co-produce it. Bear nado versus cocaine bear. <laughs> <laughs> you, this is literally how content is made in Hollywood. <laughs> right. I, I'm pretty certain. Although they probably do drugs, then do suggestions like yeah. this. Uh, we're just that good. We're, we're good. Give us a call. <laughs> yeah. Give Lots us, of ideas. Yeah. People with money and, and, <laughs> Access to movie lots. Bear NATO versus cocaine bear. There we go. Would cocaine bear just run in the opposite direction of the wind really fast and then stop the tornado and all the bears fall out of the sky? Is that how it ends? Maybe. I, I think know. that's how it ends. Let's there we not go. Give all our ideas oh, it's too away. late. I just gave away yeah. the ending. There could be a surprise beyond that. <laughs> yeah. That I'm not gonna talk about. All right. Talk about it in the Patreon episode. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this was considered once in a lifetime event. Scientists state they don't expect anyone alive today to witness another tornado like this one. Fortunately, the tornado occurred in such a rural area, even by Wyoming standards, that no injuries or fatalities occurred at the time. Uh, nobody witnessed the tornado either, but a group of nine campers in the area heard a roar like a train and encountered golf so golf ball sized hail as the storm passed by. So that's that's not the video one. That's the Teton Wilderness one, right? Yeah. Okay. And it was what, big. It was as I say because you said no one witnessed it, but I just posted a video of it. Yeah, and this yeah this happened. That's the EF four, which is that's how how big is that? Does it say down here? It well it it caused a a damage path of 1.5 miles that went on for 24 miles. Jeez. So it was a massive tornado. That's why they call him the finger of God. Oh, that's the EF5. Yeah. Because it's like a mile and a half wide. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Uh, the tornado passed near Enos Lake where the nine campers heard the roar and crossed the Continental Divide at over 10,000 feet. The tornado eventually crossed the Yellowstone National Park border into the thoroughfare region before dissipating shortly after crossing the Yellowstone River. Uh, the Teton Yellowstone Tornado, as it's known in the meteorology community, still holds several records as far as tornadoes go, including the following. Strongest tornado to ever occur west of the Continental Divide and the only violent E uh, or F4, EF4 or higher tornado to occur west of the Divide. Strongest tornado to ever occur in the state of Wyoming and the only violent F4, EF4, higher tornado to ever occur in Wyoming. Uh, The highest elevation violent tornado to ever occur in the United States. And the only officially confirmed tornado to have ever touched down in Teton County. So you're pretty safe from tornadoes if you live out there, but 
Those nine people should have played the lottery that day. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so we're going back to uh, Mount Rainier National Park. Uh, and according to our friends over at the Copen Climate Classification System, the best definition for Mount Rainier National Park is Mediterranean-influenced humid continental climate or subarctic climate, depending on the elevation. I love how specific they get. Right. Uh, weather patterns at Mount Rainier are strongly influenced by the Pacific Ocean elevation and latitude. The climate is generally cool and rainy, with summer highs in the 60s and 70s, while July and August are the sunniest months of the year. Rain is possible any day and very likely in spring, fall, and winter. Visitors should be aware that mountain weather is very changeable. Wet, cold weather can occur any time of the year, although late July and August are genuinely... Uh, generally the driest and warmest times of the year. Summer can also be wet and cool. Snow will remain at 5,000 to 8,000 feet elevation well into mid-July. Uh, so the terrain, Mount Rainier tops out at 14,410 feet. Uh, the subalpine wa- wildflower meadows, numerous glaciers. There are active steam vents and periodic earth tremors. So it is a volcanic area. Yep. Uh, year-round snow fields at higher elevations. Tree line is at about 6,500 to 7,000 feet. So it's a pretty low tree, uh, pretty low tree line. Yeah. Uh, some of the animals you might come into contact out there: cougars, black bears, mule deer, elk, mountain goats. Uh, in total, 63 species of mammals, 16 species of amphibians, and five species of reptiles. Um, the swollen rivers. Oh, sweet. I thought that was going to be an accident. <laughs> if we ever catch an accident on here, our show is going to blow up. There you go. So we got to just like cross our fingers that nobody gets hurt and it happens within view of the camera. <laughs> Swollen rivers in spring, crossing waters higher than your knees is not advised. So there's, uh, we always talk about that and there's a couple tips we'll go into a little bit. Um, if you're a long time listener to the show, you might hear repeats on safety stuff, but we throw them in there every now and then for all the new listeners to make sure they come out with their location known. Yes. Uh, year-round snow fields of snow and ice and outcrops uh, north of paradise between 7,000 and 8,000 feet. Crossing during bad weather can be deadly. So some of the exposure risk. Uh, if you're out there when it's snowing, blizzards can kick up very fast in the winter months, making hiking or climbing almost impossible. It is usually better to camp and wait for clearing weather than to continue and risk becoming lost. You will be on our show, just not in the way you want. <laughs> Hypothermia and frostbite are also a major concern at higher elevations, so lack of shelter can be a huge problem, especially with the low tree line. So uh, no shelter above the tree line until you get to Camp Muir. So some tips in safety hiking in Mount Rainier. Pay attention to weather, as we said. Mountain weather changes rapidly. Rule of thumb is if you're going to do a summit, you want to get onto the summit and be off or starting to leave around noon. Uh, it's more rare to have storms in the mountains in the morning. Uh, it's more common in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, hiking in the geohazard zones. I don't know if we've covered volcanic activity. No, not really. This is a new one. All right. So as a volcano topped with glaciers, the landscape of Mount Rainier can change suddenly and unexpectedly. Potential geohazards include glacier outburst floods and debris flows. Learn the signs and know how to get safety. So is that uh, like a vent that superheats a glacier, melts ice rapidly, but there's chunks of ice and it just starts rushing down? Uh, without away? knowing for sure, I believe that's what that is. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. And I mean, we are experts, so yeah, that's my expert opinion. <laughs> Not an expert on outburst floods and debris flows, but expert in the wilderness of guessing. I'm an expert <laughs> at guessing. There you go. <laughs> So this one is uh, 
Safety when crossing streams. This is a big one because I don't think people take stream crossings very seriously. No. So whenever you're coming upon a stream, your best option may be turning back if the conditions do not look safe or above your skill level, do not try and cross. So you don't really want to cross water that comes above your knees. You can start losing your footing very easily. Uh, early mornings are the best time to cross when river levels are typically at the lowest. Water levels may change by as much as a foot from morning to late afternoon. You want to look for a place where the river is braided into multiple channels and cross at the widest part. Before crossing, scout downstream for log jams, waterfalls, and other hazards that could trap you. Uh, locate a point where you can exit if you fall in. Swimming may not be possible in a swift flow or if you are swept un against submerged rocks or down trees. So that's a, a good point because if you get swept away, you can kind of go like sideways, but yeah. you're going to be going sideways fast downstream. So if there's a bunch of down trees and you slam into those, you could get caught underwater and just and drown. You could get injured by submerged <laughs> rocks that you hit. Yes. Um, so you just don't want to get into that situation. Yep. Uh, use a sturdy stick to maintain two points of contact with the ground at all times. A lot of times hiking poles don't cut it because if they get stuck, they can bend and break very easily. They're yeah. not meant to go side to side. They're up and down. Uh, you always want to unfasten anything that is attached to you, like a backpack. Uh, and the point of that is if you start getting swept away, you can easily take it off of yourself and hang on to it because those are the things that will trap you underwater. Um, staring down at moving water can make you dizzy. So you want to face upstream and look forward as much as possible. Uh, straddling a foot log may be safer than walking across it. So if there's like a down tree or something, uh, especially if it's wet, don't want to balance on it. So yeah. you just got to consider the consequences of a fall. Even if it's not deep, uh, you could hit your head, get knocked out and drown that way. Yeah. So, uh, next we're going to talk about ice caves since we are in a volcanic icy area. Visitors are strongly discouraged from approaching or entering ice caves or meltwater channels as they are prone to spontaneous collapse due to melting. Sealing and entrance collapse or ice and rock fall could be fatal or cause serious injuries to those who venture inside or near the entrance. Those entering these channel caves are in danger of hypothermia due to the combination of cold air temperatures inside and colder meltwater flowing from the snowfield. Meltwater volumes inside will increase throughout the day, just as the stream crossing hazard. Hiking on glaciers and snow fields over ice caves slash meltwater channels may result in breaking through the ice and snow and falling into rock or into streams running below. So that's a, yeah, just stay away. Yeah. I mean, stay ice is heavy. Ice caves. <laughs> there are, ice is heavy. You get yeah. 10 feet of ice coming on you, that's thousands of pounds. Yeah. You'll get crushed and you're done. Uh, so if you're going to go hiking in the Muir snowfield, Avoid the snowfield in questionable weather, especially if you're alone or unprepared. Weather conditions can change suddenly and drastically. If you're ascending and clouds or fog start rolling in, turn around and head back to paradise. If that's not possible, stop moving, dig in, and wait for better weather. Without a compass, map, and altimeter, it is extremely difficult to find your way in the trailhead in a whiteout. Carry these items and know how to use them. Yeah, if you're walking on white snow and then there's snow all around you, yeah. you're not going straight. I don't care who you are. You really shouldn't be up there if you don't have a compass map or altimeter. I can't say it. Altimeter. There you go. There we go. <laughs> uh, do not descend on skis or snowboard in limited visibility. You could become lost. You know, you know people do that. Well, the Park Service puts these warnings out because people have done that. Yeah, there's definitely names associated with these rules. Uh, when hiking to Camp Mir, be sure to carry emergency uh, bivy, bivix, uh, bivouac or camping gear so that you can spend the night 
out if you have to. What the heck is this? Is this a misspell, maybe? I might have misspelled it. Because is it like a bivy? I'm going to look it up real fast. A temporary camp without tents? Nope, that's correct. Hold on, let's see how uh, you say it. Bivouac. 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 I've never heard of that before. I'm sure I've seen them. I didn't know they were called that. <clears throat> a temporary camp without tents or cover, especially used by soldiers and mountaineers. I'm going to like look that up in a bit and then share it on screen. But, yeah, the original, the initial, oh, you know what? I think it's, uh, yeah, just when you dig in and kind of cover yourself. Maybe that's just like the name for it. Okay. There's also these, uh, the sleeping bags that are like tents too. It comes like one tiny pole. Yeah. And it's just a sleeping bag that you can be out in the weather in. Um, never did that. Kind of want to, but kind of don't want to either. Yeah, I don't know. So, uh, to I mean, I already hike pretty pretty lean as far as tents yeah i so. like the protection of a thin piece of <laughs> thin piece of fabric. thin piece of fabric that could easily be ripped open but for whatever reason makes me feel a little safer yeah i mean <laughs> i when we hiked mount rainier here's my story you didn't want to hear uh we actually had to turn around halfway through the trip because of the weather and it, we, we had like sideways rain and i had i had clothes in dry sacks and the second you pulled everything out it would get soaked your tent was soaked. Your sleeping bag was soaked. Everything was just oh. soaked. And we, I think we made it the first night and it was just so miserable. We were like, we're risking hypothermia if we continue. So, so you went to a bar and got a hotel? <laughs> no, we kept hiking, but we, we uh, got off the mountain. I think we ended up going to Olympic National Park. Ah, switching the parks up. Yeah. So, but you're here today. Yeah. Because you turned back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. <clears throat> let's get into the story number one. All right. Of so three. yeah, we have three different cases here of, uh, from different time periods. Our first case is a gentleman by the name of Lowell Lynn. He went missing on November 30th of 1957, though I saw some news reports that stated, uh, December 1st of 1957. The one thing we've learned doing this show for so long now is the farther you go back on cases, the more sketchy the information gets. <laughs> Unless it was like a like uh, that kid that went missing in the Appalachians, like, like just a, really a really big case. Yeah, this case barely anyone talked about. But so he was male, age twenty three. We don't have a lot of information about who he was. We know that he grad he recently graduated from the University of Minnesota with a degree in engineering. And his, his dream had always been to work in the aerospace industry, and he eventually got a job with Boeing in May 1957, which is why he moved out to Seattle. So uh, late November 1957, Lynn and his friend Harry Holcomb planned to snowshoe up Mount Rainier. Uh, Harry planned to ski back down, and Lynn was planning to uh, snowshoe back down. So, and once they got down, obviously because Harry would have made it down quicker than um, Lynn, they planned to meet back up at the Paradise Inn, and when Lynn failed to check in, Harry reported him overdue and missing to the National Park Service. We've got, I, I've got a couple little blurbs from local newspapers at the time, so a Star Tribune article from December 2nd of 1957 stated, uh, purpose of the excursion, Holcomb told the Tribune last night, was for him to do a little skiing, Lynn, he said, simply went along for the ride. On the way up, Lynn lost his lunch and about uh, 10 a, at about 10 a.m. at the 6,500-foot level and decided to go back. 
and that was reported to the Associated Press. Another article from the time, the News Tribune from December 3rd of 1957 stated, On the snowshoe climb, Holcomb carried a pair of skis. When he left Lynn, he donned his skis for the return, return trip. When Lynn failed to show up uh, two hours after Holcomb reached the inn, Saturday afternoon, a search was started. And then finally, we have one more uh, little clip from the Spokane, Spokane Chronicle, December 2nd, 1957. They wrote, snow driven by wind started falling before Holcomb reached the inn. Search parties were driven back by the howling storm. An Associated Press article published in the Chattanooga Daily Times stated, snow had been falling steadily since yesterday morning. Uh, the time Lynn left a companion and was not seen again. So the NPS searched for a couple of days, but had to end the search on December 2nd, 1957, due to the heavy snowstorm that had rolled in. And Lynn and all of his gear have never been found uh, to this day. Um, so <clears throat> at the time, rescuers believed that Lynn may have fallen down a crevasse during the heavy blizzard conditions, which is why they weren't able to find his body or any of his gear. That's really all we have on the first case. I was I wasn't reading ahead, and I was going to say the exact same thing. It was probably a crevasse based on the warnings we were getting in those snow fields. Yeah, by yourself. I mean, that's that's why you got to tie up to somebody in case you drop in that you don't fall like and a hundred feet potentially. Weather reports probably back in 1957 weren't as accurate, or maybe they weren't even available uh, for these gentlemen before they went out hiking because. If it was now and I was planning the snowshoe up Mount Rainier, I would not be doing it with a pending blizzard coming in. Yeah. So um, I think I am right there with the um, – sorry about that. It's uh, Harley-Davidson season in Milwaukee yeah. and might be one of the most – Just don't bring attention to it. Just keep going. I know. We're professionals. You got to keep going. But no I, matter what. Unless a, someone's dancing in the window, then we bring attention to it and blow it up. We'll rant about this on the Patreon episode, but it, I find it is one of the most annoying sounds <laughs> on the planet is a Harley sound. So you love that South Park episode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about this in the Patreon episode. They look fun to ride, but man, are they annoying. They're fun to ride. Um, so, like I said, this was uh, not a lot of information in this case. He was never found. His gear was never found. Um, I tend to agree with the, the rescue rescuers from the time that he probably was uh, lost in this blizzard and fell into one of the numerous um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to see how much that gets picked up yeah I bet we'll be surprised it'll be very quiet yeah so, so <laughs> all right that was case number one we're moving on to our next case we are the Harley Davidson Milwaukee biker who mysteriously went missing <laughs> on May 11th. We're jumping into our time machine and moving up to July 1st of 2010. So, uh, the, are we fast forwarding to 2010? Yes. <laughs> um, the gentleman's name in this case is Eric Lewis. He was a male age 57. Uh, he Again, we don't know a ton about him, but we do know that he was a very experienced climber. He had climbed in Nepal, New Zealand, uh, Chile, and Argentina. Reports state that he had climbed Mount Rainier over 10 times before this incident, but he had never gone this route, which was Gibraltar, Gibraltar Ledge. I've got it pulled up on the screen for those watching. 
So he uh, graduated from the University of Missouri with a degree in fine arts. He was also climbing with two other experienced climbers this day. So, like I said, Eric Lewis, aged 57, uh, he, he lived in Duval, Washington, was reported missing near the top of Mount Rainier while mountain climbing on Thursday, July 1st of 2010. He disappeared when his climbing companions discovered that he had unclipped from his climbing rope, leaving them to pull up uh, a coil with a blutter- butterfly knot. Uh, he, like I said, he was climbing with two other experienced hike or climbers. They were ascending the Gibraltar ledge route on Mount Rainier when they encountered high winds and low visibility. Uh, this route was um, first uh, done in 1870 by um, Hazard Stevens. Oh, what and a cool name! Philman Beecher Van Trump. So in 1870, they first did this. Philemon Beecher Van Trump. And it's now considered a standard winter route on the mountain. Can you imagine? All the way back in 1870, they they did something. Yeah, the type of gear they were climbing that thing with. And no one had done it. They had no idea where they were going or what they would find or, like, they were the first. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's wild. So the climber in the lead on the ledge route was Don Storm Jr., um, and he was joined by a second climber on the rope, Trevor Lane. At 13,900 feet, as they waited for Eric to join them, they discovered only a coil with a butterfly knot when they pulled the rope in. They had caught a glimpse of him on the rope just moments before and immediately searched the slope below them. After a thorough search of the area, they proceeded to the summit ridge in case Eric had somehow skirted around them while they searched below. When he was not found on the summit ridge, they then returned to Camp Muir and the... The, high, the climbing high camp at 10,200 feet and reported the incident to rangers. So now the search. A team of climbers searched the um, some ice falls nearby and they searched the Gibraltar chute areas and a Chinook helicopter flew climbing um, areas where Eric could have ended up. Climbing ranger Tom Payne and two mountain guides climbed the summit looking for Eric late on the day of his disappearance. Uh, the All right, di- so here's Camp Mir. Okay. This is Gibraltar Rock right here. Yeah. So that is a really high-altitude camp. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Yeah, he must, like, unclip for some reason. Yeah. So um, the day after um, his disappearance, the search expanded with more than 40 people involved. Ground searches, searchers included National Park Service climbing rangers, climbing guides from... Rainier Mountaineering Incorporated and Alpine Ascents International and volunteers from Olympic Mountain Rescue. Park rangers aboard a military Chinook helicopter from Fort Lewis and a commercial helicopter from Northwest Helicopters searched from the air. Searchers actually did locate Eric's backpack, climbing harness, and snow shovel at 13,600 feet and a, um, in a small snow cave at 13,800 feet. Um, that's wild. No, and a small snow cave at 13,800 feet. He did not have a sleeping bag, tent, food, or down jacket with him. So he, this is the thing that always makes me so puzzled. I understand that he's climbed Mount Rainier a lot Mm -hmm. and he didn't, he wasn't planning on being up there for an extended period of time. And obviously you can't climb with 50 pounds on your back. But you think you would, I don't know, 
you think you'd bring some clothing or something in case something went uh, wrong and I you're think, stuck I think there. that's where, if you're an expert at it, why? Yeah. I mean, look at, um, uh, what's his name? The free solo dude. He literally climbs nothing. Yeah, but I mean, he climbs in a lot of the areas he climbs are not this wild as far as like cold weather blizzards oh okay as weather i'm like like hey. half dome i mean yeah it's like he's climbing pretty wild places no I get, I get what you're saying what elements elements what yeah. he's doing is <laughs> insane i mean i watched i his, was like are you just discounting the fact no, that he like <laughs> absolutely not i watched that documentary where he did he soloed yeah just sweaty he climbed up half dome i mean yeah, no, no, thanks. No, thank you. But I mean, what an incredible feat for oh, somebody absolutely. to do. Oh, this is cool. This is Camp Mirror. Yeah. It's, it's got like a little building. Yeah. Remember, that's the only shelter above the tree line. Yeah. But like sometimes when you say shelter, it can be like, you know, <laughs> like, like, shelter. like a stick leaning against a wall with like a tarp a, over a lean it. to. Yeah. Like something <laughs> like that. This is like, look at that. They got like. Yeah. And it's a little. It's got windows and doors and stuff. That's cool. It's like a little chalet. Yeah. Look at that guy. Hi, guy. <laughs> Hi, guy. <laughs> um, so, Incident Commander Gen Glenn Kessler said at the time, the search area is high elevation glacial terrain and demands a high level of technical skill. The odds of finding the missing climber alive must be weighed against the risk of searchers operating in such hazardous conditions. We've thoroughly searched the areas where we were likely to find Eric Lewis and believe it's now time to scale back. Like most searches, they were going to continue doing normal patrols of the mountain with a vigilant eye towards finding clues pertaining to the missing climber. So what happened? Um, a gentleman by the name of Joe Simpson wrote um, a book and later a film called Touching the Void, and he wrote about how his climbing companion, Simon Yates, cut his rope during a climb on the west face of Salua Grande in the in a mountain range in the Peruvian Andes in 1985. On the descent, an accident resulted in Simpson falling over a cliff while roped to Yates, who was forced to cut the rope to avoid both climbers falling. Simpson survived after crawling out of a snow cave with broken bones and unable to, to uh, walk. It was a miraculous escape from, the death, uh, from death in the Andes. So That's crazy. So maybe something happened to what him. What a hero. Yeah, that actually sounds like a really cool story to talk about well, maybe think, in a like, future episode. Like, think about that. Like, yeah. you're, he literally sacrificed himself for his friend. Yeah. And That's incredible. Um, maybe something happened to him where he decided to unclip instead of taking the two other guys down. Um, this is just a, a, a puzzling uh, case, and they found his gear. So they found his backpack climbing harness. So that yeah, would, that, that's where that would lead me to think that he got to solid ground and took his climbing harness. Yeah, off. Yeah. And that's, that's from like, you can't unclip if it's under load. Yeah. You'd have to basically pull yourself up to unclip. Yeah. I mean, you could, but if there's like an emergency happening. Yeah. That's why they cut. I don't know. I don't I know. Mean, maybe you could. I don't know. So it seems like he disconnected to go do something else. And if they found his, his, I mean, he had to have taken off his climbing harness. Yeah. And his backpack. Like that doesn't fall off. Like if he would the have. The backpack could have maybe fallen yeah, off but somehow. He, if he didn't like cut, cut the line. He unclipped. So yeah. he unclipped, got to solid ground, or at least he unclipped and was hanging on the side of the mountain and was taking the harness off and the backpack off. 
Because if he would have fallen, if they would have found his body, they would have found it with the harness on and potentially yeah. with the backpack on. Yeah, there'd be no reason to take your harness off. So it, it's not like it's bulky. It's not like it weighs anything. Like you can, I mean, when I've gone climbing, climbing, yeah. I'll hike out with my harness on because it's easier to wear than to carry. And the ice cave where they found his gear was only 200 feet below where he went missing. So it was close. But his body is missing. Yeah, so that's like he got down there, took stuff off, and then went somewhere else. Yeah, that's without any climbing gear. Yeah. So I, I, I don't understand why he would. I don't understand it. I Like maybe ditch the backpack. I'm assuming it's a small backpack if yeah, he's climbing with not it. Not like something we would hike with. Yeah, like a, one of those like a day pack size one with maybe just water, chalk, maybe, I don't know, Yeah, rope. The, th- the puzzling thing is... <clears throat> The harness being t- taken off. I feel like that wouldn't just fall off. You would no. have to deliberately take that you off. You would have to deliver on, like, the belt loops and stuff. Like, it's not... And you could... I mean, when I say it's not easy to take off, I'm saying it's not easy to take off, like, a quick one-two. Like, yeah. a normal could, belt on pants, you gotta, like, pull one way, unhook it, and go out. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And you couldn't take it off while still hooked in. No. I, uh, I Maybe. You, you could. It'd be difficult. But then it would be attached to the rope. Yeah. Like, that's a lot harder to do than unclipping, which is a lot harder to do than, like, just cutting the rope. Yeah, I don't know. Makes no sense. There was no indication that he was, uh, you know, experiencing mental issues. Obviously, we've said this millions of times in the past. That's not, that doesn't mean that somebody wasn't suffering from something. But yeah, nothing that I read during my research stated that he was um, in any way you know, suicidal or having any kind of financial troubles. I mean, this guy was a world-renowned climber, and he was with two experienced climbers, and he just inexplicably unhooked from the line and then took his gear off and then just disappeared. So, I don't know, very strange one. Very strange. I honestly don't know. I don't have a theory for that one. Yeah, because he, like, walked to somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And then just... He got left. to this ice cave. Yeah, and that's so wild. Took his harness off, dumped his bag. Um, so wild. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? He's up there somewhere. So, jeez. Yeah, I mean, maybe he, maybe he had to pee and he stopped, and maybe you know, he you yelled have, up to his buddies. And you don't got to take your him. harness off to do that. I mean, you got to like. Yeah, it's not easy, but like, if I had to pee and had my harness on, I would. I'd, Without going into detail, it's easy to figure out because I've done it. Yeah. Like, you don't, it'd be more difficult to take the harness off to go pee versus just unzippering and you can pee. Yeah. And you don't even have to unclip. Yep. Don't have to do any of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, harnesses are very convenient. (laughs) Like, they're, and they're, they don't weigh anything. They don't get in your way. I don't know. This one, this one of the, that's a really strange one. This one's a strange one. The next one's pretty strange too, but the, the Eric Lewis one really puzzles me. I, we don't get stumped. We always usually have a theory for each case. This one, I don't even really have a theory. The only theory that I can even possibly come close to is he committed suicide. Like he unclipped, went yeah. to that snow cave, took his gear off, and then jumped off. But there was no indication of why he would do that. And that doesn't mean we don't. there's more to the story that we don't know. We are only able to get what is publicly available. Could, um, could have been a mountain tornado. Could have been a mountain tornado. Um, no, but seriously, I would say um, one of the other rarity cases or like rare things that might've happened is if he was getting hypothermic for whatever reason, and then was just not, wasn't making sense. Yep. Because I said, I had that one story with that one guy who in the rain, I was with this guy. Yeah. Um, 
took off his wet clothes and put on his dry ones in the rain. So yeah. then those got soaked and then all of his clothes were soaked and he's like, I'm going to hike back to the car. The yeah. car was 10 hours away. Well, and, and, and in his head, he's like, oh, I'll just go to the car and get my clothes. Like he was not, he would have potentially died if we're like, no, you're getting in the tent and he listened to us. So if he started getting hypothermia, he was like, I'm just going to get out here and oh, yeah. I'm going to go sit here and pulse. Wait the and, storm out. Yeah. Like, or not, or just like he just is doing stuff. And he's like, oh, I'm going to head back to camp and walked away without his that stuff. That actually makes more sense to me now because, like I said, they encountered high winds. Yeah. You're up at, I, what what do we say? They were up at 13,000 feet. Yeah, but and an exposed uh, rock face. Yeah. So you're getting blasted. There's no, there's nothing around you blocking the wind. And or, it's or, December. Uh, yeah. No, not December. It was July. But yeah, still. So something, he got out of there for something. I, I'm thinking maybe some kind of, he was getting hypothermic and for whatever reason on you know maybe he as he was climbing up he saw this snow cave and he was just like i'm gonna wait it out here and they, they're gonna come back down um i'll just get you know maybe not rationally yeah. thinking it through or uh actually the way you put that maybe that was rational it's like i can go up there i can stop now and if there's shelter quote unquote shelter nearby maybe what happened like our warning about snow caves he got in there and fell into fell through into a crevasse Ooh. and Maybe he like took his gear off. He's like, all right, I'm going to take this off. Just chill yeah. out here. And that makes a lot of sense. The weight of his body, maybe body heat started warming up the ice inside the snow cave and he just went right or through. Or if he just like, I'm going to go look back in here and see how far this goes. Yeah. Who leaves knows? his stuff up front. Okay. I, that seems That's way more. That's the only thing I can think of. That seems pretty viable. It would be a, the theory would be a lot easier to come up with if they said he had cut the rope. That means like something happened and yeah. he didn't want to take the other two guys with him. Yeah. So he cut the rope, but he unhooked. <laughs> and the other two guys didn't make any mention that like it the weather was bad but they both survived so they got to the top and then back down he wasn't a novice climber he was a world-renowned climber so you would think that he has the skill the other two guys have to get up to the top and back down yep so i don't know very puzzling we could talk about this one all night yeah that's a, that's a good one so, i wish there was more information on it. that would be a whole episode yeah no sadly i you know i I did quite a bit of, you know, research and it was pretty barren. I mean, it was, you know, 13 years ago, but you would think this would be a bigger story. A world-renowned hiker or climber uh, goes missing on a climb on a mountain. He's climbed 10 times before. So um, very puzzling. Okay. Moving on to our third and final case. This, this took place in the 90s. So we're uh, talking about a gentleman named Joseph Wood Jr., he went missing on July 8th of 1999. And kind of interesting, two of these cases both happened in July. Um, first one was December. So, And he went missing in the Longmire area of Mount Rainier. He was a uh, male, age 34. Um, we know a little more about this guy just because he actually was a, he was a pretty, pretty big name in journalism in the late 90s. So he graduated from Yale. And he was the 1990 recipient of the New York Foundation for the Fine Arts Fellowship, which is a pretty big deal um, in, you know, the, the journalism arena. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it allowed him to travel overseas yeah. where he wrote a book. Um, so it was kind of like a grant. So okay. then he became the editor at uh, New Press in New York City. And he was also the former editor of The Village Voice, which I've heard of The Village Voice. I've never read it, but I know that. <laughs> I know that I've, I'm aware it exists. That's uh, funny. 
So, and he also was pretty experienced in the wilderness. He, um, from a very early age, had a love for the outdoors. He was a Boy Scout and made it all the way to Eagle Scout. So, um, you know, more training than your typical person as far as, you know, what to do out in the wilderness. Sure. Um, he did have a medical medical condition that he discovered just a few months before he went hiking. So he found out that he had some, they didn't say what it was, but he had a heart issue and was considering getting a pacemaker. So I don't know what that entails. I, I don't know if that would affect you while exerting yourself. I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. I mean, he could, uh, if you have a pacemaker and it's because you're getting abnormal arrhythmia, which would be triggered by stress. Yeah. So, but the point of the pacemaker is it paces your heart. So you might feel it, but, yeah. You'd be better off with the pacemaker because it will regulate you instead of if you're going to tachycardia or something where it's okay. out of control. So, so yeah, just uh, keep that in the back of your mind as we're talking about this case. Yeah, so, if anything, it speaks to his condition of health more than anything. I mean, based on pictures, and obviously that's not a great way to look at... He, he looked, you know, he's 34, pretty young still. He looked like he was in good health. Obviously, he had this heart condition. Yeah, that could be a genetic thing. So those, like... There's those like those people, no matter how healthy they are genetically, like they're just yeah. predisposed to having some sort of heart condition or something like that. Yeah. So um, on July 7th of 1999, Joe flew to Seattle to attend the Unity 99 National Conference for Journalists. While he was out there for that conference on July 8th of 1999, he drove to Mount Rainier National Park, which is about 60 miles southeast of Seattle. He'd entered the park at 12.29 p.m. according to... Uh, to a car park receipt um, at the Nisqually entrance. He drove to the Longmire area and started his trek heading towards Mildred Point. He was not equipped for a lanky hike, lengthy hike and was dressed only in a light shirt, carrying binoculars and a bird book as the weather was perfect uh, that day for bird watching. Um, so his three-hour hike took him through dense forests of western hemlock and Douglas fir, with four to six foot high uh, compacted snow blankets that partially covered the trails. Uh, the Longmire area and Ramparts Ridge Trail are at the southwest side of Mount Rainier, crossing Pearl and Devil's Dream Creeks at 4,800 feet. It goes on uh, to four small lakes, including Squaw Lake. On July 11th of 1999, when uh, Joe failed to reappear again at the conference, friends were surprised, though not alarmed. But when he didn't return to New York on Saturday, July 11th, his ex-partner, Samini Sengupta, a reporter for the New York Times, who was also at the Unity Conference, raised the alarm. Uh, Samini uh, and other friends of Joe traveled to Mount Rainier and followed Joe's route up the mountain. Uh, they tried to reach the place he was last seen, but the trail was still buried in snow, and rangers advised them to turn back. So July 13th of 1999... Uh, so many uh, had filed a missing person report with the Mount Ranger Mount Rainier National Park Service, and the next day, park officials found Woods' rental car in the Mount Rainier parking area. On July 15th, park rangers were contacted by a hiker, Bruce Gomond, who recognized Joe in the, a local newspaper story and called them. He said he had met Joe on the Rampart Ridge Trail at an altitude of 4,800 feet on July 8th at around 2 to 4 p.m., and they had briefly spoken. Joe had asked whether the snow-covered trail continued much further. Bruce told him he'd 
gone up five or ten minutes, but turned around at a snow ridge, which looked dangerous to cross. He was not on a main trail, so this is important, but was following other footprints from hikers. Bruce came down the mountain immediately after their conversation. The MPS uh, organized search teams of backcountry rangers, firefighters, and volunteers. Squads with dogs moved out across the southwest face of the mountain with helicopters crossing the peak. On Friday, July 16th, heavy rain fell, but rangers, encouraged by improving weather, decided to extend the search by one day. They found no evidence of wood, and eventually the search was terminated. Convinced that Joe would have succumbed to the elements with his light clothing and lack of food or shelter, they were of the opinion that hypothermia uh, was the cause of his, his death on Mount Rainier. But again, no, none of his belongings and you know, his remains have never been found. And um, this one, I think, I'm thinking he maybe didn't take Bruce's advice about the snow bridge up the trail and yeah. tried to cross it and then fell in. That seems very likely. And that's what happened to him. Or I think another very likely theory is that he wasn't on a marked trail. He was literally following people's footprints. He got lost. And just kept going instead and of staying still. We've talked about this a dozen, yep. dozens of times how um, people generally tend to, once they get lost, tend to start making the, the wrong decisions. And instead of maybe just staying put, they start wandering and getting lost even worse. And if we already know he's not on, he's on a trail of just other hikers that were leaving footprints that can be, I mean, that sounds like a recipe for going lost. Yeah. Like, I mean, in, in a snowy area, you're cold. Like he doesn't have the proper gear with him. It's not, doesn't sound like he had a map or a compass or anything like that with him. Yeah. Some might even say a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think my two big theories on this one are he, he tried, he actually did try to cross that snow bridge and fell in or because he was off trail, which we tell you all the time not to do, always stay on the marked trails. Yeah. Um, for getting lost and for leave no trace. You're in a national park. If everyone does that, there's gonna be no wilderness to look at. Yeah. You're going to destroy the, the, the park and yeah. we want this, we want this stuff to be around for, you know, hundreds of years so people can continue to enjoy it. So always stay on the oh, trail. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think those are the two likely scenarios with him. Uh, what do you, what do you think? I've got no additional. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I can't see it going any other way. Yeah. And it, just the fact that they haven't found his remains leads me to think that it probably, if he didn't attempt to cross that snow bridge and maybe was lost, he might've fallen into another snow covered yeah. area somewhere else. Yeah. It's very easy to spot things among snow, especially when, Camping stuff is usually very brightly colored in some way. Yeah. So it's very easy to see people against that snow. So he must be under something. Or and you got to think, like, if you, if you attempt to cross a snow bridge and it collapses, it's not like the searchers can potentially just walk up to the hole in the ground and look down like, oh, there's Joe. Like, yeah, you're going to be covered. You're going to be covered in even more debris. And that's of, what, hundreds of thousands of... Uh, holes of snow like yeah. what are they going to search every one of them like it's yeah because you could search not realistic i mean animals cause those to collapse they collapse yeah. on their own they collapse from falling tree branches you know they, they probably encounter collapsed you know areas in the park all the time they can't search every one of them yep nope totally agree though you would think maybe that snow bridge 
on the, that area where he was, they would maybe try to search that. But it might be too dangerous for it, searches yeah, to say, go in. Going down something like that, yeah, potentially it's it's putting other people's they, lives at risk. It, I guess the searchers don't necessarily know how big the opening is under the snow, so that yep. you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I still the, the second the Eric Lewis case is just bugging me. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. one. I don't understand why he would have done that. Yeah. I, I honestly, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. If we're going to guess, because that's all people can all do, we can do. Nothing, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think it's maybe bad weather, maybe made, uh, honestly, almost a good decision of, hey, let's let's wait this out. Yeah. Uh, and then either went exploring or it was a bad spot to wait it out and just was not lucky. Yeah. Because he's been climbing that long. Um. I don't want to go down the, the route. I don't want to go down the route. He did it on purpose. Like he's trying to end himself. Yeah. Um, so I would look at it. He was making good decisions because he was seasoned at what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you can do the best thing possible, but when you're out in nature, man, it's powerful and you can't control it. Maybe he just got unlucky and yeah. where he went was not a good spot. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, uh, it's still one of the more puzzling cases we've covered. Yeah. I, w- I wish there was way more information on it. I know we could do a whole episode on that one. All right. Well, thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate you all for listening and sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can find the videos of each episode as well. Also, if you would like to support the show monetarily, please visit our website or Facebook store to buy some sweet, sweet swag. Additionally, you can subscribe to our Patreon account on YouTube subscription, nah, subscriptions and Apple subscriptions where you'll have access to special events and additional shows for paid customers only. Lastly, when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or simply taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>